0: Are your dreams invaded by shadowy figures, digging away at your soul? Are you concerned that your nightmares are real? Are you afraid to sleep? If you've answered yes to any of these questions, try Hypnosil. This dream-suppressant drug from Craven Corp is available at your local pharmacy. Side effects include daylight hallucinations, memory loss, and low libido. Do not combine with grapefruit.
1: are all interested in the future, for
0: that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future. The
1: caller is in the house. The calls are coming from the house. Yes.
0: Part 1 of a two-part Halloween episode, warning for discussion of cinema violence, including sexual violence. A music-free version can also be found at tinyurl.com slash spookyjetpack.
1: Kia ora welcome to Where's My Jetpack, a politics and pop culture podcast with sci-fi and socialist leanings. And welcome to our Halloween 2021 episode with Annie White and guest Tyler West. In terms of Halloween content, we've also released a bonus episode with Joe Isaacson talking about social reproduction feminisms and horror. But for our main episode, we've got Tyler on to pick favorite horror flicks of each decade. We've had Tyler on previously, back in 2019's Red Brown Zombie interviews, where he outlined the history of the far right in Aotearoa, New Zealand. In addition to his historical work Tyler is a radio and podcast host hailing from Dunedin, New Zealand. He has a number of shows on Radio 191 FM and Otago Access Radio as well as independent forays into podcasting under his belt. For the last two years his focus has been on the horror focused radio show turned podcast Haunting the Studio with his co-host Andy. Welcome to the show. Thanks, and thank you for having me. Tyler's going to kick us off with reviews starting in the 20s, then I'll join in with my faves from the 60s onwards. So in the meantime, take it away, Tyler. I set the 20s for this
0: because I think it's kind of the first decade where you can talk about fully-fledged feature films as we know them today. But I will throw in that I think The Golem from 1915 and Frankenstein from 1910 just kind of interesting as little curiosities of the development of horror as a film genre but for the 20s i've decided to go with hexan witchcraft through the ages which is a swedish kind of documentary kind of film essay from 1922 it focuses mostly on the development of the concept of witchcraft and of folk beliefs and superstitions in mostly Europe through the beginning of the Middle Ages and then towards the 20th century. It's based partially on a essay or a study by the director and writer benjamin christensen himself and the film overall which bounces between a kind of more traditional documentary which is kind of narrating the development of these folk beliefs and some of christensen's work and ideas around them through to more representative pieces and kind of dramatizations that meld a little bit between something that's traditionally documentary and something that's a lot more fantastical and goes beyond beyond just being traumatizations of what those beliefs could have looked like in centuries prior so it creates this interesting meld between the two that I find to be super fascinating for a movie that at this point is almost 100 years old to have that degree of experimentation and kind of meld between reality and fiction so far back it's also very shocking for what it has in it for a film that again is just shy of 100 years old as of recording this there's nudity in the film which kind of amazes me even for a pre-code film as well as depictions of torture and a fair amount of anti-clericalism which in 1920s europe wasn't kind of the worst time to do it but was still quite a shocking thing to put to film and release to the public for the 20s i also chucked in the cabinet of dr caligari although i picked Huxon as my main pick i think you'd kind of just have to at least mention the cabinet of dr caligari so many subgenres of horror trace their way eventually back to that 1920 film and for what it is you can kind of get a little bit of so much of what was to come from a single film i also of course loves the german expressionist style and i really have to Commend Werner Krauss for his performance as the titular Dr. Caligari. He gives a really entertaining but also very fitting performance given the very abstract stylings of the movie being in that German expressionist style.
1: Yeah, I think the style is what stands out most for me. The sets in particular are just amazing and definitive. I really think that just what you could watch that movie for the sets alone. So when we go into the 30s, I had a bit of a
0: toss-up because I do have a couple favourites, and for the rest of this, I will be kind of picking the occasional film because I think it deserves a little bit more merit, and it's one of my favourites rather than definitively being my favourite. But I decided to give this one to the 1931 Fritz Lang film M arguably one of the first slashes after the um, genre soup that was dr caligari and just an incredible performance from peter laurie he gives one of the earliest performances in a film that still to this day 90 years down the line actually is quite affecting and gives you like a little bit of a chill i think it's a very interesting film also to look at in the context of when it was being made this film i think is quite clearly inspired by the at that point only just finished crimes of the vampire of Düsseldorf, one of germany's most notorious serial killers as well as a number of other high profile and quite grisly serial killings in weimar era germany and a little bit before as well and knowing the context of when the film is being made in, in such close approximation to these crimes as well as the incredible directorial and set work on top of peter laurie just giving this spine chilling performance it's completely deserving of its position as one of the greatest films of all time in my opinion.
1: Yeah, I think Fritz Lang in general is is very worth paying attention to for anyone looking to go back a bit into the history of cinema. I mean, Metropolis is also very much definitive in terms of sci-fi imagery. You will have seen visual echoes of both of these films, Metropolis and M, even if you haven't seen them. And people may or may not be aware he then later had to flee Nazi Germany in part because of the politics of his work, in part because he was part jewish and so went on to have a hollywood career fritz lang in general as well as this particular film is is very much worth looking into i think definitely i did have a few other recommendations i suppose
0: from the 30s the mummy 1932 i think is my favorite of the universal monster era that sort of golden age in the 1930s of course i love 1931's dracula as well as 1931's frankenstein and a few of the sequels to come from either but the mummy is the standout and was the thing that was competing with m for my top slot boris karloff gives i think his best performance as the mummy Imhotep in this and also i want to throw in that z johan gives a great performance as helen grosvenor as well and the film is probably one of my favorite examples of that particular kind of semi-corrupted or otherwise just a little bit off romance that you get in some horror films and the kind of romance that lasts for millennia is very affecting in this film and carloff absolutely pulls it off another one is the most dangerous game this wasn't a competitor for first place in the 30s for me but i do just want to throw it out there because i think it's one of the more compelling depictions of a human monster besides peter laurie and m the most dangerous game also i think is quite interesting because it is a human and upper class monster which post code you don't get that many of and even now still isn't the most common of instances of a human monster you get in horror a lot of the times the human monster you find in horror is just kind of some guy you know someone who lives down the street and very reflective of the kind of fears that the golden age of serial killers per se in the late 60s through mid 80s raised because a lot of them weren't your classical kind of mentally deranged complete lunatics most of them were just kind of regular people who lived down the street however you know know having that in the body of a quite upper class and respectable figure I think is an interesting deviation that you don't get that often and it is nice to have one of those classic 30s movies that gives you a feeling for that a couple more I'd like to throw in just one of my other favorite Karloff performances the man they could not hang only really throwing it in because of all of the mad scientist tropes that we get from the 30s one of my favorites that falls a little bit by the sideline mostly thanks to Frankenstein is Karloff's the man they could not hang I also think there are some quite procedural elements in this and parts of it remind me of that old dark house trope and it is nice seeing those kind of blended together very successfully with a strong Karloff performance all in one film and it's just a really enjoyable film from the 30s so I threw that one in as a recommendation as well. And the last for the 30s is Dracula's Daughter, the sequel to Dracula, although the sequels to the original 1931 Dracula don't really follow that much of a sequel format they don't really relate to each other that much in comparison with some of the other franchises to emerge in the 30s. I mostly want to bring in Dracula's Daughter because as a postcode film coming out in 1936 I have always read it as being a strongly coded depiction of lesbian desire in the 1930s or in 1930s film i don't know if that's the most common of interpretations of this film but I imagine it probably is I just haven't really looked into a lot of reviews and retrospectives on this film but I think that as well as a truly incredible performance from Gloria Holden as the Countess Maria Zaleska who is of course Dracula's daughter make this film a really worthwhile one to give your time to
1: yeah I mean that erotic and particularly homoerotic aspect of vampires is a really long-standing thing and it obviously got exploited more overtly through to sort of 70s lesbian vampire films and that or you know Anne Rice's very homoerotic vampires although she wouldn't accept fanfic that was shipping them. It's a long-standing aspect and Dracula himself you know was clearly a very sexual figure. I think intentional or not it's kind of hard to get a void with the Dracula and the vampire kind of vibe it always is very sexual I think as well as being kind of a declining aristocracy thing I think those are sort of the two big things that are just pretty universal to vampire stories except the more zombie they get sometimes the less erotic but yeah I do think that
0: should it be a deliberate choice in the writing of the film then it was quite a brave thing to do in the post haze Code era especially a couple years after when by that point people probably had mostly settled into what you could get away with the Hayes Code taking effect
1: I'm also fine with people finding subtext that may not have been intended we did a whole episode on that the author is undead that just by nature audiences find things that may not be intended and that's just the nature of how people receive films so moving into the
0: 40s i have one of my favorite hitchcock films that probably only slightly falls behind psycho and the birds for me but that's 1948's rope it is a murder mystery where the murder isn't really the mystery and the amount of tension packed into this movie is just going to ruin anyone's blood pressure it manages to have this slow boil that just keeps accelerating in intensity and at no point do you have a reprieve before the film finally ends i know that for hitchcock he really didn't like the final product he didn't like that his vision of a single continuous shot just wasn't technically capable at the time but I think the workarounds they used and the fact that it still is only I think two or three continuous shots more than make up for that even though Hitchcock that's probably one of the films that he hated the most that he made because of those limitations and the fact that he wasn't able to completely live out his vision but the performances from James Stewart and John Dahl and the incredible amount of tension Hitchcock packs into this makes it I think a continuous for one of the best Hitchcock films and certainly one that I put on almost as much if not maybe even a little bit more than his two more famous films Psycho and the Birds.
1: I guess Vertigo is also up there. What do you think again of queer readings of Rope? It always struck me as one where if it's a queer film then it's a somewhat problematic one. Do you have any thoughts on that?
0: I hadn't read that into it before but I feel like now that you've said it, if I rewatch it, I probably would. (laughs) I probably would because thinking about it in that lens, I do actually kind of see what you
1: mean. It's been talked about that you can read there as being a, a couple, but if so, it also fits very much with a very pathologized kind of horror queerness, so it's not unproblematic if you read it that way, but it's still an interesting angle on the film. Yeah, I agree, it, it must have been about 10 years ago that I binged, like most Hitchcock, and it's definitely one that stands out as having a really pronounced structure and voice and really, really memorable, so I agree with you on that one, That let's start there with his best words. So I had a couple more in the 40s. One was The Wolfman from
0: 1941, which I threw in because it probably is my favourite from the 40s, but I wanted to give that one to Rope because I think that film was a little bit underappreciated behind the likes of Psycho and Vertigo, East by Southeast, etc. You mean North
1: by Northwest? (laughs) I I do mean North by Northwest.
0: It's on the compass. I got it close enough. The Wolfman, I think, has one of my favourite performances in any of the universal monster films that being lon chaney jr as the titular wolfman larry talbot he gives just a performance where you cannot escape the tragedy of this character it borders on being shakespearean the the degree to which Talbot is able to express the complete tragedy of someone who really has no monstrous characteristics in and of themselves, they're just a perfectly ordinary person and have this circumstance thrust on them and must simply live with it this is something that he would carry in all of his other performances as The Wolfman and some other films that honestly aren't that great further into the 40s but his performance always elevates it I also think that you get some great performances from Claude Rains as his father Sir John Talbot as well as Evelyn Ankers, Bela Gosi, and Maria Uspenskaya as Maleva, the inner word you can't really use anymore, the gypsy woman, but that is what they call her in the film, but as a kind of Roma mystic. All of them give pretty strong performances, the set work is great, and again, Larry Talbot is one of the most incredibly but convincingly tragic figures of the Universal era.
1: Yeah, I feel like of the classic universal monsters, Wolfman's probably the one who gets the least love, so again, you're kind of picking not necessarily the ones that get highlighted as much, but you know, we on this podcast have talked a bit about the Monster Squad before, which uh, brings together the universal stable of monsters, if people don't know, in an 80s kid flick context, and was the Wolfman's got nards. The sequence in which somebody kicks Wolfman in the nards was the basis of also a documentary about how that film the monster squad has become a kind of a cult classic after initially failing it's a bit of a tangent but just in terms of the universal monsters people enjoy those monster squad kind of brings them all together my last kind of universal pick and i'll be really quick with this
0: one is 1943's phantom of the opera one because it proves the point that there's kind of a revolving door of maybe five to ten actors and actresses that appear in all of their horror because Claude Rains appears in this one despite the uh, main cast not being you're super well known universal horror actors and also because it's probably my favorite adaptation of phantom of the opera it's definitely jockeying for the first spot and i think of all of the universal horror films there are two phantom of the operas which are both quite good a silent one in the 1920s and this one in 1943 they get a little bit pushed behind the more famous universal ones including the wolfman i think phantom of the opera is probably even lesser one for them but yeah it's probably my favorite so i thought i'd throw that in of all the adaptations and it is a decent film it's one that you can pretty easily go back to today and watch and you know enjoy it's partially helped by the fact that it is a colour film or at least it has become a colour film since i'm not sure if it was originally a colour film and it's just kind of a fun one to watch moving on to the 50s my pick for the best of the 50s i gave it to the thing from another world the 50s is a hard one for me because i haven't watched that much 50s movies but i do have a kind of strong coterie of favorites that jockey with each other but the thing from another World which was famously remade by John Carpenter in the 80s as The Thing, 1951. It's very heavy on the isolation, claustrophobia, the cabin fever, and in terms of a strong performance in horror in that decade, where the performance has to take center place, because the effects were really the main driver, I think it makes it one of the stronger horror films of the 1950s. I really enjoy cabin fever viewed through this 50s as we would put it kind of looking back sort of quote-unquote traditional masculine approach and just kind of watching these people who've been forced into this situation come up with creative ways to try and figure out their way around it where their attempts to figure out what to do are actually the thing that you're looking for in watching this film, rather than the creature effect, which as I said, aren't really a huge part of this film, they're a pretty minor part of it.
1: It does play to its strengths, as you say, it has the sense of the atmospheric isolation of, of Antarctica, which I think the thing that Remake also captured quite well, that was something that really carried through, was that, you know, the howling wind in the background, and the just that sense of isolation that comes from that. And it's really definitive for what is essentially my favourite kind of horror, which is sci-fi horror you know not only the thing but also alien was also a kind of remake and i believe they were all adapted from the same original source material you mentioned you know that nowadays we might see it through a macho lens but it's interesting this again this is something we've talked about before on the podcast but uh nigel neal at the time kind of criticized it and as having this macho kind of american outlook and he sort of wrote Quatermass in part as a rebuke to that as a more compassionate figure so spoiler at the end of the thing from another world they electrocute the thing and whereas specifically in the first Quatermass in the TV version they consider electrocuting it and then sort of appeal to it inner a humanity because in both cases it's this kind of alien occupying the human which they kind of a tangent but they didn't carry through to the movie adaptation that just restored the electrocution but even then there were people saying it was a bit macho There's some obvious Cold War paranoia, like the closing monologue has this very sort of Cold War feel to it. But yeah, it does what it does very well. As you say, it has this atmosphere and it really is a prototype for sci-fi horror in general, I think. Quatermass is also
0: definitely a a personal favorite from the 50s but I knew you were a fan and I know you'd probably pick it up so I left it off my list thinking that it'll probably come up anyway.
1: Yeah well we did an entire episode about it already so I won't go on about it more but definitely Quatermass is a classic. Although my favorite Quatermass versions are the BBC versions which aren't the feature films so I wouldn't necessarily pick the feature films as my faves from the 50s anyway. They kind of screwed the character up. They turned him into a bit more of a brutal Throat, which he's not supposed to be. Said I wouldn't go on, but yeah, Hammer didn't get that character. Speaking of Hammer,
0: for the first of my just kind of bonus ones, I'm going to throw in the Hound of the Baskervilles. An adaptation done by Hammer in 1959. This is kind of right after or around the time as they began launching their line of rebooted classic monster films that would make them dominate the 60s. With Peter Cushing playing Sherlock Holmes and Christopher Lee playing Sir Henry, it's really nice to see the two of them in roles where they actually get to interact because the setting you usually see them in is in the Dracula films, and Christopher Lee usually has few to no lines in those films. So it's really nice. Nice to see the two of them being able to interact it's also a really good arthur conan doyle adaptation you know a sherlock holmes story and more being a mystery film i decided not to really make this my pick for the 50s but it definitely has a lot of horror elements and i have a personal running fan theory that christopher lee and peter cushing because they've got such chemistry in this film hooked up david bowie and Mick Jagger style at some point during the filming
1: Yeah, I can see that, but, you know, I can see gay chemistry anywhere, just projection. But in terms of the atmosphere of it, I think both the book and the movie capture the sort of the atmosphere of the Moors. I lived in the UK a couple of years as a kid, and the Moors really are quite atmospheric. They really are a perfect setting for this sort of thing. And, you know, both the story and film rely heavily on that sense of atmosphere you get on the Moors, Much like Antarctica in both versions of The Thing, I think. There's a kind of spirit of old England
0: that the film, and I presume the book, I haven't read the book, but the film captures, which I think works very well with having one of the modern kind of reduced figures of the british aristocracy being the center point of the film that it revolves around the two things together just merge quite well because it's you know you catch the train from london with sherlock holmes out into essentially the sticks where a kind of old england still lives but you know it's pushed out far away it's not really something that is is interacting very much with the modern world that's my smart people talk cap way of looking at this film but carrying on with my 50s checks, I did throw in The Seventh Seal by Ingmar Bergman. It's not really a horror film per se, so I couldn't chuck it up the front, even though I personally think it's another contender for sort of that greatest films of all time list. Max von Sydow gives just a performance of a lifetime as Antonius Block, and also Bengt Eckerot gives a great performance as Death in this. The Motive of the Chessboard the quite heavily delved into themes of this movie about life and death the existence of god the nature of living they delve into it quite deep for a film you usually expect kind of a a lighter treatment of such topics or anything that gets particularly philosophical in film, especially if you're going as far back as the 50s. But in this film, they just kind of drop you into it. You gotta put your thinking man's cap on for this one. But also, beautiful set design, everything works together so well. And again, Max Fonsetto, incredible performance in this film. I also chucked on The Creature for the Black Lagoon. This one was another pick that could have been my favourite for the decade, but I decided to leave it a few back. One of my favourite of the kind of earlier version of those quasi-environmental films that usually take place somewhere like the black lagoon somewhere kind of swampy and in the sticks and involve some kind of scientists or otherwise people from the modern world going to a more primordial place and dealing with being somewhere that isn't like or doesn't have the niceties of the modern world so to speak I also chucked it in here because I became aware recently that the Gillman for the all of the water scenes who was played by Rico Browning is apparently on his last legs these days so it's nice to throw one last shout out to him and it is also a great great example of the scientific quote-unquote horror films of the 50s it's one of the best examples of that particular subset of 50s sci-fi and horror probably one of the best that they have to offer and for my last of the 50s picks i also chucked in house of wax from 1953 more or less two reasons one much like phantom of the opera 1953's house of wax i think is probably my favorite version of that film there's the original one that came out in the 1930s and of course the Paris Hilton starring remake from the 2000s I think there might actually be another version of it out there floating around somewhere but it's a film that's quite famously been remade a few times but the 50s version probably my personal favorite so I thought I should chuck it in here also probably one of Vincent Price's best performances there are definitely a few other Price films that I think he has a little bit more shine to him in and also another film from the 50s House on Horn of Hill is probably my favorite kind of more fun, goofy, kind of dramatic price performance. But House of Wax, among his best performances, I think, and also my favorite version of the story, and another one of those films that despite its age, it's kind of just a fun one to go back to, and you don't necessarily have to be someone who loves older films to enjoy this one, I think.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's in color for one thing, and it kind of has that really garish early color i also looked it up and saw it was the first color 3d film of the era but you know they're really garish color which creates a very specific kind of horror you know you think of horror as being rooted in darkness and all that but this one is very it's almost sort of camp in its visual style but very effective i think in how it uses that more sort of garish visual style That rounds out my 50s picks, and I think now we're
0: moving into the 60s, where I think all involved have some picks for these films, but I'll still kick it off. My favourite for the 60s, again, one that I picked because it's among my favourites for the 60s. I might not necessarily put it on top on any given day, but I think it's definitely one that deserves a lot more attention, and that's 1968's Targets. Targets, as far as I'm aware, I'm pretty sure is the last major role for boris karloff there may have been a couple other roles in the year or two after but this is right at the very tail end of his career quite shortly before he passed away and has boris karloff not directly playing himself but pretty much playing himself as a character called byron orlock who is pretty much just boris karloff the story for this one because it is a little bit more obscure is one of the earlier examples i'm aware of of the public mass shooter appearing in film i take it that this character is probably pretty heavily inspired by charles whitman because i'm pretty sure charles whitman's shooting spree atop a university tower had happened by this point you know I don't know these crimes encyclopedically I'm not that much of a true crime fan but I'm pretty sure Charles Whitman's shooting spree happened by this point and this film absolutely captures the kind of fears that I was talking about before about someone who might just be living down the street from you having something incredibly dark inside them that could harm a lot of people and you just not being able to know and of course that type of social paranoia isn't a good thing to foster but I think it's an interesting thing to make art from and consider it that way
1: that's an interesting point about serial killers mass murderers and the anxieties associated with them i mean i tend to think that is one issue where film and tv has really warped our sense of the world because you know yeah serial killers and mass murderers are scary and are a good kind of villain but at this point when you have tv shows where every other week there's a serial killer and actually serial killers are i don't know the exact number but something like less than one percent of the population i agree that sense of anyone any man down the street could be a mass murderer it is a very effective kind of underlying premise for horror it's sort of a lot of slasher films really rely on that premise it is something that i think the amount of attention to it in film and tv has really distorted our sense of that as a threat that not necessarily the stranger but the threat outside the house kind of thing when obviously you know just to get really sociological the callers coming from inside the house most violence you likely to experiences from people you're close to just to keep things really cheerful i mean that's just a by the by it's not really a criticism of the specific film just picking up on what you're saying about individual mass murderers and serial killers and the like and it's it's a tension that the film
0: is also aware of which very much helps build the tension within the film. Karloff's Orlock in one scene is sitting down reading a paper. His kind of tangent in this film is that he is essentially Boris Karloff at the point in Boris Karloff's life and career that he's at in real life and someone's trying to coax him into making some final public performances, some final public appearances. They want to get him to a drive-in cinema screening of one of his films. And there is a point, I think about halfway through the film, where the villain character called Bobby Thompson, who is played brilliantly and very chillingly by Tim O'Kelly, is partway through his spree and it's being reported on. He hasn't been caught yet. And Karloff's Byron Orlock is sitting there being harangued by some kind of producer or other sort of media world backroom person about getting back onto it and being back out in public one last time, where they kind of tell him that he's kind of the monster of screen he's this incredible figure that has scared so many people and in a huff Orlok throws down the paper which is reporting on these crimes that O'Kelly's Bobby Thompson has been committing and goes there there's your real monster I can't portray anything like that which if we watched that today we'd probably think it was a bit hackneyed but in 1968 it's very effective and all involved again I'm going to say this for a lot of this because I do like giving the actors individual credit but all involved do give a strong performance in this film as well so i'm gonna chuck for the next of my kind of shout outs from the 60s two films just kind of together because i don't have that much to say about them and i don't think there's that much more that can be said about them that's 1963's the haunting and 1960's psycho for the haunting i threw it in because ghost stories and other supernatural stories of that kind a lot of the kind of old dark house type trope don't really interest me that much but the haunting is a major exception and keeping with the theme that started with dracula's daughter at least in the pics that i have once again it is one of the great representations of lesbian life and lesbian desire but through a suppressed filter that can't say these things out loud at the time it's being made I think not that far into the future because this is already the early 60s it became a bit more acceptable to address homosexual desire in fiction but it was still a long way off being the sort of thing that you could just kind of have laying about and openly promote.
1: Yeah although it seems pretty open for the time If people have seen 99's, absolutely appalling, but in my opinion, very enjoyable 99 remake. Catherine Zeta-Jones plays the same character as a sort of voracious bisexual, but I think it's definitely present in that film. And it is also a film that has, again, an abiding atmosphere. It may not have the sort of visceral effects we might expect in more contemporary horror, but it does have this great atmosphere, like that wall sequence, for example, is quite something
0: definitely and when it comes to Psycho I don't have anything to say about it I kind of threw it in because it's one of those films that you know always comes up in these lists but for me it was the film that broke me into horror I think I watched it when I was like maybe 12 maybe a little bit older than that but it was a film that right before my adolescence or right at the start of my adolescence I I picked up a copy of it and watched it because I'd seen so many of these lists of you know the greatest horror of all time and one of the greatest films of all time and I think it was the first film that really gave me a look into what horror could be and that it wasn't just about, you know, something scary, because I didn't necessarily want to be scared. And I could get a glimpse at the kind of things that horror could do, so it was a really personally influential film on me, as I'm sure for many other people. So I also chucked on The Last Man on Earth for the 60s. This is kind of a zombie film although they're still referred to at this point in a film from 1964 so a few years before night of the living dead as vampires this is of course one of the adaptations of i am legend which in more recent years has had a quite famous remake and it also i think this is probably next to house of wax this might be the great vincent price performance I hesitate a little bit because price isn't really interacting with very many people it's very much a solo film and a lot of his acting is very solitary because it is a very isolating and solitary film but he gives a truly great performance where he knows exactly where to restrain the kind of hamminess of some of his more colorful performances and where to really let the terrible struggle and realization for the character that he really is the last human and they aren't really the dominant species anymore really sink in and i think of all of the zombies films from that pre-night of the living dead era where the zombie was still kind of being constructed into what we know it as today this is one that gets across that particular sense of zombies overtaking humans absolutely down pat
1: Yeah, I definitely think it's moving into the Romero phase, like, it's in a lot of ways closer to Romero than to the sort of I walked with a zombie, white zombie kind of voodoo zombie thing, very much, yeah, feels a lot like foreshadowing Romero's turn and i agree about the sense of isolation it's this you know watching it in 2020 which i did it was quite an experience because that sense of like the emptiness of the world and the emptiness of the apocalypse kind of hit a different chord in 2020 in particular but yeah i agree it's another good kind of atmospheric one absolutely atmosphere is one of the things that runs through at least a
0: chunk of the ones that i've kind of brought to the table for today the last of my 60s picks this one is very hammy it's 1964's the evil of frankenstein i threw it in because i am a big hammer fan and i knew that i couldn't leave the 60s alone without having one in there and i think barring the kind of big classic first iteration of the various classic monster franchises that kicked off in the very late 1950s for Hammer, if you're just kind of jumping into it then The Evil of Frankenstein might be one of the better of the Hammer Frankenstein films I absolutely love Peter Cushing's Baron Frankenstein in most of the Frankenstein films they made, I think he is one of the great mad scientists but I also throw it in because the creature in this one, or Frankenstein's monster or however you want to call it, is played by New Zealand strongman legend Kiwi Kingston so I thought it was worth chucking that in as well
1: nice and I'm kicking off finally with my favorite of the 60s 1968's Night of the Living Dead it's a pretty obviously big definitive one for a reason this one is in my top five movies period any genre It redefined zombie movies although as we said it actually that had been anticipated but it really it was almost like the turning point for that kind of zombie. It still has a real claustrophobic intensity. I think that sense that it's not just the zombies outside the barricaded house but the tensions within the house is really strong and really contributes to that intensity. The practical effects hold up and throughout the whole Romero series, of course, with Tom Savini, that the practical effects are brilliant. Much like the same-decade Psycho, it shows black-and-white cinematography can have its own atmospheric qualities rather than being outmoded and inferior. Just a little tangential point, the Psycho remake, I think, is an incredible example of somebody managing to be faithful while completely missing the point of the original much like Watchmen, the movie adaptation. Watchmen being very faithful, but managing to completely miss the point. And in the case of the Psycho remake, you have, for one thing, Norman Bates is played as really overtly perverse, whereas the whole thing with Anthony Perkins' original performance, he was the mama's boy. It was the sweetness and the innocence that was kind of eerie about him. But then also, and this is tying back to Night of the Living Dead and its kind of specific atmosphere, the fact that they made a shot-for-shot remake in colour, when Hitchcock had actually made colour films before Psycho and chose to shoot Psycho in black and white not for atmospheric reasons but actually to make a quick, cheap film in part, but like he does use the effects very well where shadows land in a particular different way and contrasts land in a particular different way and it's clearly shot to be in black and white and so to make a shot-for-shot remake in colour of a director who had made colour films before that it's kind of astonishing that someone can and have the dedication to make a shot-for-shot remake and yet completely miss some of what makes, or a significant part of what makes the original work. That's just a commonality that both of these films, Night of the Living Dead and Psycho, were in a period where there were colour films. They both use black and white photography very well. And also, like most Romero films, Night of the Living Dead has a real social conscience. The sequels from Dawn through Day to Land of the Dead were also solid, although the last couple of entries, Diary and Survival of the Dead, were unfortunately pretty weak. We have reviewed these films in a bit more detail. The whole series we reviewed in the first episode of our Red Brown Zombie series. Though I do retract my eight out of ten review of Dawn of the Dead, which I've come to appreciate more since then, particularly due to video essays by Thoughtslime and Maggie May Fish, which brought out aspects I'd missed in initial watches. But in any case, for my money, Night of the Living Dead has never really been topped in the zombie genre. And I think that jumps over to me to move us into the 1970s.
0: This is one of the decades where I had no problem picking my favourite because it's among my favourite horror films and even among my favourite films. And that's 1973's Black Christmas, one of the great proto-slashers of the 1970s came out just before some of the other heavy hitters that would go on to really mold the slasher genre especially Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Alice Sweet Alice both I think a year or two after this this film has a kind of particular nihilism that a lot of slashers even though slash is a fairly nihilistic kind of film don't have but that is balanced off of a much more human monster than the absurdities and inhumanity of creatures and people like Leatherface or Michael Myers or Jason Voorhees. By contrast, this film's Billy, quote unquote, although he doesn't really have a name in the film, is much more distinctly human. There's no real question about it. It's just someone who's very, very unwell. And the end of the film leaves you with this kind of something heavy in your stomach feeling This this not quite a chill but a very personal and heavy dread because the film ends without spoiling anything fairly unresolved per se and also the other thing is that the the cast of potential victims are a lot more likable they're a lot more personable they're just a lot more real than a lot of batch of people for insert villain to kill that you would get especially closer to the 80s and the late 70s moving into the early 90s from the slasher genre i especially want to point out the house mother who is a I would say problem alcoholic (laughs) but it's pulled off very funnily in this film
1: yeah I love how she has alcohol stashed everywhere in the house like any room she seems to have like a stashed I don't know what does she drink she clearly has a standard drink is it whiskey maybe but she just has bottles seemingly stashed everywhere I think it's whiskey or bourbon Yeah, I agree. I'd always thought of Halloween as, even if it's not the first slasher film by any means, as kind of the prototype suburban slasher film of a particular type. But watching this, I realized that, you know, this actually sets a lot of the prototypes that I'd associate with Halloween in motion, in particular, the kind of suburban slasher film. I think the closing credits, as you say, the ending, again, it's very atmospheric. One thing I think is really interesting about this one is you say the characters are more likable sympathetic, but it initially really feels like it's going to be one of the kind of moralistic, Slasher films where you have all these sort of trashy, the people who have sex and the people who drink, and that, who those are the people who get killed. But then, I mean, I don't think this quite counts as a spoiler, but The Final Girl is definitely not a virgin, which for people who don't know, there's a famous thesis about slasher films in particular that you tended to have essentially this thing of the punish scream is a film that points this out in detail as like its thesis, but it already been been, you know, written about for decades academically and in film criticism. But basically that you have the serial killer essentially punishing people for sex or drugs and rock and roll, that kind of thing. And the final girl would generally, this is particularly the thesis of Carol Clover, who's a horror theorist, would generally be this androgynous virginal figure who essentially the male audience members could identify with more. And it sort of in a way plays into this Christian morality, but not to spoil too much. Much, but yeah, definitely the final girl in this is not a virgin, which is interesting for this very prototypical slasher film. But there are other ways in which I think it really does fit with what Clover says about about the genre. In particular, there's an interesting visual turn where in the beginning we have, and again, this is something that I kind of associate with Halloween, but we actually open with a POV from the killer's perspective, and then at the end, when the final girl starts to figure out what's happening. We have a POV from her perspective, and it's also a POV with her breathing being really heavy on the soundtrack, which is what we had with the killer initially. This is also the point where she gets a weapon, a stabbing weapon, and this all fits very well with Clover's thesis that essentially the final girl reverses and takes up the role of the killer by essentially getting a phallic weapon and becoming essentially the killer. And I think with that visual reversal of the POV, it makes a strong case for that even if it doesn't quite fit with the trope of the final girl being essentially the one virgin the untainted character who can carry out vengeful violence it's an interesting prototypical slasher film for sure there is another pick that i had for the 70s
0: which i think when it comes to defining the proto slasher into slasher era i think this is an interesting one that's 1979's tourist trap this one is definitely a cult hit heavy on the cult part i don't don't know if there's been as much of a revival for this film as there has been for some of the other ones that at some point might have been considered a cult hit but have since gone a bit more above board acclaim tourist trap is a 1979 slasher with a bizarre quasi house of wax style hook to it where the killer is interested in making waxworks and dolls and other figures of his victims this is played out in a very typical Post texas chainsaw massacre kind of a bunch of people who are on a road trip pull into this off-road out in the sticks kind of establishment in order to repair their car or stay their night or whatever it would happen to be in any other film i think they need to repair their car in the start of this one it's been a couple years since i watched it but the way the slasher villain is played out the way they weave in some genuinely pretty bizarre supernatural elements there's nothing quite like it I think is why I've added this one. Just no other slasher I can think of that really catches the same kind of manic weird that this film has and i definitely think that it's something that a lot more people could find and enjoy than currently watch it and enjoy it the people i've, I've shown it to have kind of by the end at the very least agreed with me that it's absolutely not what they thought it was going to be like when it started and the year of it coming out 1979 is also interesting because i also typically put the point of the modern quote-unquote slasher craze of the 80s starting as being halloween's release in 78 but this coming out the year after that really emphasized emphasizes that 78 to 80 is just kind of this narrow window where the proto slasher is fully crystallizing but there's still a little bit of room for some weird oddball not experimental but just kind of strange oddities to still sneak in
1: it's almost camp i think there are some very strange and surreal moments I would kind of compare it to Texas Chainsaw Massacre in that respect and they both also have that aspect that it's not a suburban slasher, it's people going out into the wops and then finding this kind of surreal environment definitely one thing about Texas Chainsaw Massacre that I think marks it out is the family and Leatherface and the surrealism of the family, although I think on the negative side it kind of prototypes the kind of really moralistic aspect of the trashy teenagers who should be punished but the interesting part of it is the surreal family stuff which i would say is somewhat similar to tourist trap In tourist trap it's almost campy though it's more over the top with it
0: it's definitely an over-the-top film i can 100 percent agree with you on that it's a hard one to describe in terms of films that are a little bit hard to describe and a little bit oddball i've added the abominable dr fibes from 1971 another vincent price classic that i think this one gets a little bit overlooked the plot to this one i would almost accuse saw of ripping off and making a lot grosser because this film is from 71 so you're not going to get saw levels of of gore or anything in this film but has a, a very similar type of very elaborate punishment as the hook for this one it is also vincent Price. Kind of moving towards his later career this coming out in 1971 he still made movies for another couple of decades after this but the quite striking visual effects of the much older man that they make vincent price to be in this film it just kind of really gives you a feel that the 70s is when you're kind of starting to shift from vincent price at the absolute high watermark into vincent price kind of moving into his later career but it is a good price performance and a very interesting take on the kind of just punishment type of human monster where the horror comes from them doling out punishments that at least in the killer's mind and at least arguably to the people who see it could be considered justified or at least are justified in the context of a particular villain's way of viewing things
1: yeah which by the by is one of my biggest issues with the at that point we're not talking slasher films really but what would become the slasher film is that when there's a lack of distance between the killer's psychology of punishing people and the audience psychology i'm going to talk about scream later on but it obviously directly addressed that I think it is a genuine issue with the genre I know this was moving into the 80s but Ebert and Roper got very anti-slasher flick and I find that funny because Roger Ebert wrote Beyond the Valley of the Dolls which is very much along the lines of a lot of the things that he railed against except I think what's interesting about it is I don't necessarily mind films being violent my issue is when there's a sense of like morality to the sadism that there's something justified in the Sadism, and that's what I really, you know, jumping a few decades ahead, really loathed about Saw it was that sense that there might be something justified in the sadism. I think it also, again, jumping forward one decade, really runs through the Friday the Thirteenth movies. This idea that there's some kind of moral punishment going on, and I don't think it's the case with all slasher films. And I'm going to talk about a couple of examples where I don't think it's the case, but particularly with Craven's work, I don't think he ever gives a sense that there's any kind of deserved punishment going on but yeah it's an interesting one
0: i've also added the wicker man to my list for the 70s it's one of my favorite 70s films one of my favorite christopher lee performances as lord summer isle and it's nice having a film that's been you know remade before where one of them is a genuinely good film it's a strong casting strong acting strong writing an interesting plot an interesting setting and one that well i I think most in the audience are probably familiar with cage's version of the wicker man about 30 years down the line 30 or 40 years down the line not
1: the bees not the bees Yeah, I
0: quite like having a film that's been remade where one is so bad it's good and one is just a genuinely good film. It's a nice juxtaposition having the two. You can almost watch them back to back and feel like you're not really watching one film being remade of the other.
1: The remake really plays up this idea of matriarchal cult, which you can kind of see that foreshadowed in the 70s one. I mean, I think it has that sense of the cop dealing with essentially hippies, even though it's kind of the small town, like cult folk horror thing. You have all the stuff like the nudity in that which kind of suggests something about the dynamic between the cop and the power of women And then the remake really leans into that in sort of a really over-the-top way where it's like kind of terrified of women, essentially. I mean, essentially, Midsommar is a better Wicker Man remake in a way. I mean, I think it it does more with a similar concept. And I've seen people criticize Midsommar as just a rip-off of the Wicker Man, but I actually think it does much more interesting things with the material than the, the direct remake, which I agree is very, very interesting. Entertaining. Anything with Nicolas Cage is worth watching. I mean, in some cases, often his worst films are most worth watching. There's a lot of English folk horror and cult horror, and I think this is very emblematic of that. Actually, if you watch a lot of Doctor Who from this period, that did a lot of the same thing. These sort of small towns with sort of weird old, you know, ancient ceremonies and stuff. And yeah, this is kind of a definitive example of that. It's also, for the era it's made,
0: it's a really nice way to present the very traditionalist, uh, hardline Protestant uh, conservatism of urban and, down the middle, British culture in the 1970s meeting with the kind of British pagan revival that was occurring in the context of Britain's take on the hippie movement and that's something that you know exploded into some very serious events in the 1960s and 1970s and even the early 1980s and I think this film is one of the great attempts to grapple with and portray that clashing of different cultures both of which emerged from very distinct British traditions which is quite nice to see that done well
1: I mean there's almost a parallel with Last House on the left in the US which was very Manson family I'm going to talk about that not in relation to this but it had that Manson family sense of essentially the turn from the utopian moment of sort of hippiedom to something a little darker in the sort of hippie ethos and obviously more cultish essentially like there's a moment in Last House on the left where the daughter is going to see this rock performance by essentially the Manson family and the parents are like I thought you were all about peace and love but she's going to see this early sort of version of a shock rock band and they give her a peace sign necklace which I thought was very funny because it's like the parents seemingly approve of like the 60s peaceful ethos on some level but they see it taking a turn towards something more cultish and nihilistic and it is a film that very much takes the parents perspective and is problematic in that respect but I think there's something of a parallel there of like the sense that the pagan and hippie elements could take a sort of a darker turn
0: yeah, yeah, for sure. The last of my picks for the 70s, and fittingly to kind of usher out of the era of Hammer and their particular period of kind of domination in the horror world, or at least the Western horror world, I've chucked in Taste the Blood of Dracula from 1970. Probably one of my favorite of Hammer's Dracula films. It has a great kind of cultish acolyte of Dracula in kind of the first segment of the film. I believe that was played by Ralph Bates but I'm not sure with this film it's a good performance Lee is absolutely he's channeling something almost angry in this film it's a bit like Kane Hodder as Jason in Jason Takes Manhattan where there's something just to look kind of angry like a little bit more than just acting on base instinct or doing it because that's what they do than the usual but the mixture of this again very upper crust story with the classic Lee Dracula giving it his all and he didn't really like doing many of the Dracula sequels for Hammer but he did give it his all for most of them. It's a really nice mix together and it's a nice send-off to the Hammer films because by the 70s they weren't that great so it is nice having at least one really good Hammer horror film in the 70s before you kind of leave that era behind. Is
1: this the one with the really powdery blood? Because that really took me out of it. I didn't get that. Yeah, yeah it is. (laughs) Yeah, there was a bit of an odd effect. And I I was wondering if there was something going on I didn't understand about why the blood was so powdery. It's definitely an interesting one. I think the climactic sequence is particularly great. But the powdery blood definitely took me out. I believe it had something to do with the beginnings
0: of the video Nasty Panic, because I think this film had some recuts after trouble with the original cut being rejected by the censor's office.
1: Yeah, I was wondering that. I was wondering if it was a bit like Kill Bill going black and white for a period, because apparently red blood is an issue, and certain cuts have killed Bill anyway. I wondered if it was that, if it was a a sort of a self-censorship or just straight censorship thing that that makes sense. Yeah, it did definitely take me out of the film. Going for an obvious one, but I think, again, definitive and uh, definitive for a reason. My favorite 70s horror flick is definitely Alien. I mean, when I say definitely, there is a lot of competition, but I really find Alien particularly affecting and, like, it works on many different levels, is good in pretty much every respect, every aspect of the production is firing in all cylinders. So this was also one of the first horror movies movies I ever watched, uh, around 10 years of age, and the sheer terror of that experience really hooked me on horror, but also I've had a lifelong love of sci-fi horror specifically. But what can you say about this sort of indisputable classic that hasn't been said? Much like you said about Psycho, how much can we really say about it? I will say obviously brilliant Freudian designs by H.R. Giga that are translated into some really horrific practical effects that kind of helped set the tone for a lot of 80s body horror and that's really for me is one of the real peaks of horror is 80s body horror and Alien kind of set that in motion to a degree or helped set that in motion much like Halloween around the same time helped set the slasher genre in motion you have a really tight script by Dan O'Bannon which not only brings the scares but also highlights the horrors of capitalism and it has some really well-defined characters characters I mean, I compare this film to The Thing as both essentially different kinds of remake of A Thing from Another World and and having similar kinds of practical effects and things. And one reason I prefer Alien, although they're both great films, is that Alien has these really well-defined, really memorable characters, who many have commented they're essentially space truckers, but every one of them is really definitive and really memorable, which I think when you have such defined characters, it means you have real tension, and this is something that I think is lacking from a lot of the more schlocky, less, in my view, effective slasher films, that if you don't care about the characters and I'm not applying this to the thing. It's not even a slasher film. But if you don't care about the characters, if they're not well defined, then there's not really any tension. And so this has a really strong ensemble, both in terms of how they're written and how they're performed, led by obviously one of the ultimate screen heroines. And also, I think it's Ridley Scott's first best work. Like, I don't think he ever really topped this, although certainly, you know, Blade Runner and Tellman Louise are certain. I won't dispute that they're great movies. So, like Night of the Living Dead, this is somewhere in my top five movies, period. And again, to find my favorite subgenre: sci-fi horror. More controversially, I actually have some time for the sequels through Three and Resurrection. Each of them tries something artistically different. You know, you have David Fincher kind of bringing some of his stylings to Alien 3, and a sort of messy script, because you know, there were a lot of revisions that sort of developed from a Vincent Ward script into... uh, Vincent Ward? Yeah, Vincent Ward script into into something else. But Alien 3 tries something different. Resurrection tries something different with the strange comedic script and the kind of surrealist direction by Jean-Pierre Jeunet. I think the issues with 3 and 4 is that they had a really troubled production history, so you have a lot of elements that don't quite gel. You have obviously a lot of revisions and things that don't quite fit together but they are actually all i think really worth watching and like interesting and each have their own kind of distinct angle on the mythos as opposed to the sort of usual generic passions with diminishing returns you get in a lot of horror sequels though yeah i'm not a fan of either alien versus Predator or scott's prequels for very different reasons So basically only Ripley is canon, basically this original quadrilogy as they called it. Despite my affection for the first few sequels, the only franchise entry, and I include, you know, Aliens Through Resurrection, the only franchise entry to recapture the intensity of the original is the survival horror game Alien Isolation, which is a standoff with a single highly intelligent alien. And seriously, the AI is very clever. So, for example, your main way of evading it is to hide in like little closets. Closet is not the word that I'm looking for. Locker? Storage locker? Lockers. Lockers, that's it, yeah. Hiding in the closet. I mean, that has a whole other connotations. Yeah, you, you're, the best way to evade it is to hide in lockers, but the more often you do it while the alien's around, the more likely it'll pick that up and figure what you're doing and that applies to pretty much most tactics taking it on that the AI, for one thing, no two playthroughs are the same, but for another thing, if you keep doing the same thing, the alien will essentially figure it out and it's invulnerable to most weapons, although the flamethrower at least scares it. So anyway, point is, the game kind of captures something of the helplessness of the original alien in a way which a lot of the other franchise entries haven't managed to to recapture that real sense that, like, they're up against something which is basically invulnerable and is this sort of, almost like a cosmic horror element to it of this, like, truly alien creation. It also, Alien Isolation incidentally also faithfully renders the DOS heavy 70s future of the original so it has that retro futurism. But it all started with Alien and I think it really is a classic for a reason. It's this very claustrophobic, very intense piece with very strongly defined characters and also the ultimate terror is with Wayland, the company that sent them to intentionally encounter something they couldn't survive uh crew expendable intentionally broke quarantine so that they could capture this creature for its bio weapons division so the ultimate horror is capitalism i do want to say that the
0: space trucker nature of the cast in alien really helps to sell the hard sci-fi aspects of the movie the feeling that you get that this is kind of like you know a logistics team you know they're just truckers or railway workers or something but in space they've done this a thousand times before this is really just kind of a mostly routine thing for them really helps sell the one the sci-fi aspect of it the, the space travel and everything it gives you a feel for this being something that it's just become routine it's not really the traveling through space and and doing all this stuff isn't really anything new to them in a way that a lot of sci-fi doesn't quite get and instead tries to compensate with a lot of kind of pseudo scientific mumbo jumbo but it also sells the sheer horror of the alien's arrival because up until the point where they first encounter the eggs this is very much just routine for them there's nothing super out of the ordinary maybe they've investigated a crash ship or something before but you know it's just a small deviation from what is otherwise a completely ordinary
1: mission as far as they're concerned and their biggest issue with it is that they want to negotiate a better bonus on the basis that they're doing the side mission which i think is great it's like their reaction to following a distress signal is well this isn't exactly in our existing kind of contract, so we're going to need better bonuses, which I think that kind of thing, I agree, that the characters really do sell that sense of capitalism is now extended into the furthest reaches of space, they're a mining vessel and this is just the life they live. I think also a thing about that which is interesting is that a lot of the time it kind of captures that space could be just an unpleasant place to be and I'm not usually that big on the sort of generally grim and gritty turn in a lot of genre work. But I think that sense that space might just be a sort of unpleasant place to be, to me, it makes a lot of sense because, you know, you think of the situation for astronauts. They are not in a normal situation when it comes to things like food and bodily waste and all that. And in this year it's more advanced than that. They have gravity on the ship, they have oxygen, you know, circulating on the ship. But it's kinda grotty and they're out in the middle of nowhere and they just want to get better pay for dealing with all this and then yeah it turns out that surprise surprise crew expendable And even the sci-fi element kind of ties in with that again with the crew expendable profit motive behind all of it otherwise in terms of the 70s a big shout out to Dario Argento's original Suspiria with its gorgeously gauche cinematography and ridiculous fountains of blood the recent remake was also pretty good. It's more of an artsy think piece about the legacy of fascism. I don't know quite how they extrapolated all of that from the original, but it's an interesting movie in its own right. I don't think I have anything to add to Suspiria. I love the
0: film, but I mostly just like the pretty (laughs) colours.
1: Well, that's exactly it. I mean, I, I know Screeds have been written about the psychoanalytic content, but I really do just like the pretty blue and red and and green I generally love cinematography with very strong colors it's one reason I'm very anti Snyder just to throw in one of my bugbears that like why would you make movies in which you suck all of the color out what's the appeal of that but yeah Suspiria is like the anti Snyder visually from the 70s onwards, I'm giving shout-outs to notable horror movie castrations to keep up our Halloween tradition of exploring ball busting, something certain of our listeners might find truly scary. So the 70s is really where castration becomes a genre trope, partly because that's when explicit gore became a major aspect of the genre generally, and also because although there were... Rate revenge films before this, this is when the rape revenge subgenre really kicked off in a big way. So the key examples are I Spit on Your Grave and Last House on the Left with castration through a knife in the bathtub and teeth during oral sex, respectively. And early rape revenge films are politically questionable and difficult to watch in the extreme, largely because they have at least as much sexual violence as the revenge element and last house on the left is probably wes craven's most dubious movie which he later expressed regret for but the subgenre has kind of gotten better over the decades a lot of the newer ones most prominently promising young woman spend less harrowing time on the sexual violence and more on the revenge it probably helps that by that point women had had more creative control in the genre that said the castration of rapists is arguably a redeeming aspect of the genre going back to the 70s and there's a long-standing debate about to what degree rape revenge could be considered a feminist genre which i think has also led to somewhat of a transformation of the genre since then as as i'm Talk about a bit later on. So, Last House on the Left is in some ways worse than I expected, and in some ways better than I expected. So, one way in which it was worse than I expected is that the vengeance isn't actually carried out by the survivor, in that she doesn't survive. She's killed halfway through the movie, and her parents carry the revenge out. So, it doesn't have that kind of reversal of agency that you have in a lot of rape, revenge, and also slasher films where they sort of start with violence towards women and end with kind of ventral violence instead you have instead of a reversal of agency you have this kind of paternalistic violence But one thing that was slightly better than I expected in a way was that the way the assault was depicted, the first sequence depicting the assault, they actually immediately panned away from it to her friend reacting. So I thought the fact that instead of showing it explicitly, they showed the reaction to it was actually, for a dubious film, was an interesting choice and that kind of continued throughout. That those sequences, they showed the reactions to it rather than graphically showing the assault itself which was somewhat less uh, sort of exploitative and less male gaze-y than I expected it was a lot more about the reaction to the assault than the camera kind of exploitatively focusing on the assault or nudity or, or some such so so it was sort of at the same time worse and not as bad as I expected but in any case it's pretty harrowing and not something I'd necessarily recommend to anyone. I mean, it's interesting because, I mean, as I'm going to talk about, Wes Craven is one of my favourite horror directors, but it's definitely his diciest film that I think you can see some of his later work as kind of one big rebuke to, in a way, that he saw some of the issues with it and some of his other work kind of deals with some of that material in a better way. I mean someone told me actually it's not that bad it'll be fine and then I watched it and it was incredibly harrowing so don't let anyone tell you it's not harrowing to watch. As for whether it has value I feel like that's we're going to be debating that forever, like whether it has any kind of a useful take on the subject matter. But there are strong points both ways. I do think the biggest issue with it is that her parents carry out the revenge in the case of Last House on the left. So there's none of that reversal of agency that's been considered kind of a redeeming aspect of both as say rape and revenge and slasher flicks just before we swing into the 80s i realized
0: that one of my favorites for the 70s have somehow managed to miss out so a quick and prompt do shout out goes to the town that dreaded sundown based on the Texarkana killings in the late 1940s which were a series of still unsolved serial murders one of the early iterations of the true crime into fiction film along with targets as well as one of the earlier instances of a film claiming the kind of mantle of this was real this is a real life dramatization of real life events as they happened getting in just a couple years a year or two before texas chainsaw massacre it pulls a very similar thing so it's definitely something that wasn't just started by texas chainsaw massacre and i don't think that texas chainsaw pooper ripped it off from the town that dreaded sundown by any means i just think it's something that was percolating in the air at the time and was ready to become a trope in horror films it's got a very mixed mood but there are definitely a lot of moments in the town that dreaded sundown that really amp up the tension the mystery and the sense of helplessness that comes with having a crime like this that goes unsolved so from there I'm gonna jump into the 80s my pick for the 80s which is kind of my most bloated era in terms of the films that I felt like I
1: just couldn't get away without mentioning yeah with good reason we've talked about that kind of high watermark for US horror I went with
0: a film that I've only watched relatively recently I hadn't heard of it until quite recently and I feel like even if it's not quite my favourite for the decade. It's shot so far and so quickly into the kind of highest tier of films from that decade for me that I thought I'd give it the top spot in the hopes that maybe a couple other people hear about it for the first time and give it a watch as well. And that's 1987's The Stepfather. It's not really a slasher film, although at the time it was billed as such. It's more of a psychological horror film and the slashing isn't really that big of a part of the film and also not really the main focus of the horror the stepfather is loosely inspired by the real life actions of a man named john list who killed his family in the i believe late 1960s maybe in the early 70s before skipping town changing his identity and managing to live for the next 17 years as a completely different person before he was finally caught in the early 90s so it would be the 70s when it happened this in part is held up by terry o'quinn once again i've said this before for a couple of the movies but giving an absolute performance of a lifetime o'quinn most people today if they know who he is would probably recognize him as John Locke from Lost and the stepfather and also its sequel is probably the thing that comes behind Lost for O'Quinn's most notable performance in terms of human monsters I can't give it to O'Quinn's performance enough for just how much he manages to sell a surface level of all-american classic suburban dad normalcy floating just above something very very dark and potentially very very dangerous it's also the only example i can think of of any kind of media that presents the idea of a serial killer whose mo is the kind of family murder that unfortunately in new zealand when it comes to really horrible true crimes are probably the ones we're most familiar with But I've never even thought of the concept of someone whose serial killing is done in that way. It's truly a very chilling and unique idea and take on the inspired by true crime genre. O'Quinn gives a performance that just sends chills down my fucking spine for how much he is able to sell someone who is only just keeping it together and who is constantly right at the threshold of giving up and trying again which inevitably means killing his new family once more i'll also say that jill schlolan and shelly hack has the mother and daughter combo that terry o'quinn's character moves in with very strong performances from them as well and the opening sequence to this film is i've said chilling already but the opening sequence to this film is once more just one of those things where The juxtaposition of normalcy to something very terrible having happened is just enough to really put me on edge. I personally read this film as a social critique of the kind of specter of the all American dream of the Reagan years and the fact that that dream was kind of by the 1980s becoming a mirage, and the figure of someone who is looking for that dream and never quite able to get it because perhaps. Perhaps it just doesn't exist, and their reaction is the most violent and terrible possible reaction to that being the case. And it's insinuated this has happened over and over again is just something that runs right up my spine.
1: I've talked about the morality of killing as punishment in these kinds of films. And I think this is a really good example of a film that has complete distance between the perspective of the film and the perspective of the killer. In the sense that even though he's the character who we first see and so you could consider him a kind of a perspectival character like that you have no sense that actually that the film is endorsing his kind of punitive sense of morality, which I agree is very much an ultra-conservative one it's about controlling the family we've said chilling and atmospheric a lot but one of the really chilling moments in the movie I think is when he's at a party setting and everyone's talking about the last family that was killed that's come up in the news and he sort of expresses what seems like really genuine shock and you're sort of trying to figure out if it's genuine shock or if he's just playing a very good act. And then somebody asks who could do something like that, and he says, well, maybe they disappointed him. And it's just such a perfectly chilling moment when, you know, it says so much about the character, and you have to sort of cut away to the daughter who has his number throughout the film. I think it's a great example also of Hitchcock's bomb under the table. So for people who don't know, that's how Hitchcock talked about tension, an example he gave, that if you see a couple of people having conversation at dinner and then they get blown up, there's a shock, but there's not really tension. But if you show a bomb under the table and then you pan up to the conversation, then there's tension throughout the sequence. And this very much relies on that, I think, or uses that effect, where we know from the start that he's a killer and the daughter has his number and there's no mystery. There's just the unfolding tension and the question of whether they'll survive. Also, figuring out the relationships, figuring out his motive, you sort of start to without in any way simply Sympathizing with him you start to see what his psychology is and it like it it does that very well where we're reading everything in the context of him being a killer so when he overreacts to his daughter kissing a boy on the doorstep we read that in the context that we're looking for his motive as a killer kind of thing so yeah I agree it's a very well constructed film I agree It, it, it definitely has something to say about the family and conservatism and the sort of attempt to hold together an ideal of the family which he's unable to do you know and the violence is basically as a loss of control that once he can't make his wife and daughter behave as he believes they should that's when the violence comes out
0: one of the things i've been trying to grapple with uh, after watching this film is that it does remind me of american psycho in that where american psycho essentially is revolving around the particular kind of savage nihilism which the zero consequences new money the yuppies yeah the yuppies the no breaks finance lifestyle that the characters in american psycho kind of represent from the 80s and 90s and pretty much up until the great financial crisis and where that film is about the kind of savage nihilism that that breeds this film is again a character study of kind of a type of guy in a particular era but it's more so that subset of older boomers and also younger silent generation from the 40s who grew up in the 40s and in the early 50s who are by the 1980s desperately trying to reclaim a particular kind of growing up that simply doesn't exist anymore but they're still being promised it and they still think it's real and they'll go to any length to try and reclaim it it's the sort of thing that A lot of heartland rock artists touch on but in a a much more sympathetic way the likes of your bruce springsteen tom Petty's, and those types of musicians they're a very similar era are kind of raised in the 50s but they're a lot more mournful and a lot more circumspect about what it means to have been raised in that era and trying to live in the era where they are now but the few times that i've tried to grapple with that comparison to american psycho i've had a little bit of pushback so maybe it's something that only i see
1: (laughs) I can definitely see it. I'm curious what the pushback is. I can kind of see that as the two sides of Reaganism, you know, that, I mean, they're both set in the 80s, but the one side of Reaganism being it was a grand coalition. It's the coalition of the neoliberals, which is kind of the yuppie nihilistic side that's that's essentially just unleashed the markets and the rest sort itself out. And Many of them may have even been very socially liberal. The coalition of that with essentially the conservative side which is sort of back to the 50s, often Christian, although, you know, the stepfather doesn't have to be Christian, but it's the social conservative side of it, which they kind of pulled together into a coalition. So you can kind of see it as the two faces of Reaganism in a way. What's the pushback you've gotten
0: it's largely to do with how upfront and clear it is in american psycho where it's not as clear in the stepfather that that's necessarily what they're going for it's a lot more subtextual in the stepfather so it's it's more a disagreement about whether or not that's actually the intention of the film and also whether those two things are directly comparable because this film isn't really that nihilistic and i I think the the sheer nihilism of american psycho is a sticking point which is fair because there are a few films that are as as bluntly nihilistic as american psycho Psycho. yeah
1: i mean i don't always place that much importance on intent but yeah and i don't know exactly what the intent was but i certainly think there's definitely elements of this film that are hard to read as anything but a condemnation of conservatism at the very least like i think his again his extreme overreaction to his daughter kissing a boy on the doorstep And the mother sort of saying, I've I've known this boy my entire life, I trust him. That to me is a very clear rebuke to kind of conservatism and to associate that kind of paternalistic conservatism with a serial killer, it definitely carries that implication. It requires the audience, a bit of active audience interpretation, but I definitely think it's present. I don't know if it's intentional, but like, I definitely think it's present that this, this association of like conservatism with this kind of violence and the use of violence to essentially control families i have a lot of picks for the 80s so i'm kind of kind of sweep through the rest of them a
0: number of my picks more lean towards the fun aspect of the 80s horror boom so i'm going to try and get out the other ones first and do all of those kind of together the first one i want to throw in is psycho 2 from 1983 which should not work flat out a psycho sequel 20 years down the line in the 80s obviously without Hitchcock's consent because I'm pretty sure by 83 he'd passed away or at the very least it was extremely old it just shouldn't work it, it, shouldn't be, it almost shouldn't be allowed to work I'm almost mad that it does but it's held together by two things one is some very good directing on director Richard Franklin's part he really sells it as a at least somewhat convincing or reasonable sequel to Psycho and it happening 20 years down the line kind of works in the film's favor because the main thing is that anthony perkins returns and he did for all of the psycho sequels which again that there should psycho sequel shouldn't be a thing that i can say out loud and be real but alas it is anthony perkins he just brings his best It almost seems like he really is passionate about this project. At the very least, it's clear that he really wants this project to work. His Norman Bates in Psycho 2, there are a lot of nuances to it that come with the, the general story that Norman Bates, after 22 years in psychiatric care, has been allowed back out into the community and has largely managed to deal with the issues that led him to commit the murders in the first one. Obviously, this being a psycho film that goes awry and it is a bit more in line with the traditional slashes but still manages to retain at least a little bit of the spirit of Hitchcock's film and there is weirdly enough another kind of bomb under the table feeling to this because you know it being a horror film that Perkins is slowly going to fall apart but you don't know when and you don't know how and the horror more so comes from Bates's attempts to deal with the people in the community he's been released back into which i think is the least believable part is that they let him go back to his old home kind of pushing and prodding Bates because of their quite justified suspicions about him and his attempts to try and hold things together and to weather that prodding and to not go back to what led him to commit the crimes of the first film so it's one of those ones where i think it's quite surprising that this film actually turned out quite good and i do think that psycho 2 is one of the hidden classics of the slasher boom of the 1980s So another slasher that I'm checking in here is Maniac Cop from 1988. It's kind of one of my go-tos in terms of slasher franchises from the late 80s that aren't quite at that top super well-known tier as your Friday the 13th or your Nightmare on Elm Streets. It's a little bit of a cut below them. But Maniac Cop is probably one of my favourite instances of, hey, we've got a slasher and there's a hook. And the hook in this one, of course, is that he's a cop. It feels like he's meant to be kind of zombified in this film, but I'm pretty sure that he's just meant to be like a quite scarred and battered dude. He's not meant to be supernatural in any way in the first Maniac Cop, but the strong sense of kind of the late 70s through 80s urban crime feel to it that really came back in the late 80s, the neo-noir aspects, the mystery of not really the film itself but the mystery that the characters are dealing with trying to figure out who this maniac cop is before they reveal the truth all of that just works together very well and it comes out as a nice Vaguely ACAB package from the slasher genre.
1: Yeah, it's an, uh, it's an interesting series. Larry Cohen actually went on to write that movie, Phone Booth, which is quite funny because that movie, it's very contained, very simple. You can see how someone who'd made a bunch of, like, essentially B-grade movies would write that because it, it works on limited resources. But it also has that very New York feel of a lot of his more sort of classic sort of trash material. Yeah, I agree. And I agree that got increasingly supernatural. I mean, I think the third one was not very good. Did I imagine it? Does Bruce Campbell show up at one point? Yeah, he does. Yeah, so those are definitely fun ones. I think the first two are good fun. The third one goes a bit off the rails. I don't know about Cab, I feel like the politics are a bit all over the place because there's also stuff about him killing criminals where it seems to be celebrating that. It's more like he's just this generalized angel of vengeance in a way that you get in a lot of trash cinema where it's like an angel of vengeance who is almost apolitical, isn't the right word, but is not always politically easy to pin down. They'll I'll be vengeful for almost anything.
0: Yeah, it's a very surface level. It's more just kind of like ah, they made the killer
1: a cop this time. He does challenge the cop corruption as well, but again, it's like that's on the same level as as like killing hoodlums and stuff. It's all just justified vengeance and that. Yeah, I mean, like some of the death wish films challenge cop corruption, but
0: they challenge it for not being brutal enough again very surface level but moving through because i do have a lot pumpkinhead from 1988 same year i'm only really throwing this one in because one i quite like lance hendrickson who plays the lead and two in terms of the 80s effect heavy and big partially animatronic partially person in a suit effects the pumpkin head creature and the attenuating supernatural stuff around it is one of my favorites and i think it's a little bit unsung compared to some of its contemporaries because pumpkin head isn't really it's a quite well-known 80s and 90s franchise but compared to the big heavy hitters it's it's a little bit more obscure and i think the the creativity and the care that went into the pumpkin head creature as well as a really nice distinctly rural setting That very much has a kind of people who just live out in the sticks dealing with life as it comes not really something that is explored as a theme in the film but there is kind of a feeling of kind of rural american poverty that runs through it all of that comes together to make just a really nice film it ties together quite well and again i can't say enough how much i love the pumpkin head monster the creature effects are so good in this movie Not necessarily a slasher, but I also chucked They Live In Here because I felt like I needed to have a calm film in here somewhere. This is another one from 88, and it's probably one of his better films, I think, or at least one of the ones I'm most likely to chuck on. It also is, I think, probably one of the best wrestler films in terms of wrestlers switching to acting they live just because it had carpenter writing and directing it it just works really well and i also threw it in because it was quite funny seeing some more reactionary tribes trying to read this in a more anti-semitic way which you could do and then john carpenter coming out and being like no it's just straight anti capitalist fucking morons <laughs>
1: That was a really nice feeling. (laughs) Derek, our usual co-host, would be very disappointed if we didn't include Carpenter in some respect. He's a huge Carpenter fan. I guess we have referred to uh, The Thing. But yeah, none of the decade bests, but definitely anything from 70s or 80s Carpenter is well worth a watch. And Yeah, They Live has the very on-the-nose social satire, so that's fun. Absolutely. I've
0: also added Akira to the list, which isn't a straight-ahead horror film by any means. It's probably one of the most famous cyberpunk films ever made. It's got to be dueling with probably Blade Runner and nothing else for the most famous cyberpunk film. However, the body horror elements in this make it probably one of the strongest body horror films ever made i think obviously with akira you have some of the best animation ever put to film the degree of detail is just stunning from start to finish and if you're looking for kind of creature effects or or a creature feature film or something that has a lot of transformations in body horror you can't go wrong with akira so i thought i'd add it because in terms of the 80s you have a lot of body horror and i think akira is one of the great body horror films
1: yeah particularly towards the end i mean yeah definitely the climax takes body horror to quite an extreme
0: yeah for sure so i've got a few of the more humorous ones just tucked in at the end here again from 88 i don't know why so many of my picks came out in 88 but killer clowns from outer space which is a relatively well-known cult comedy horror film i kind of added it because i'm usually a bit of a stick in the mud when it comes to horror comedy it's probably because in new zealand the vast majority of all horror is horror comedy so i get a bit sick of it
1: god i hate black sheep (laughs)
0: But Killer Clowns from Outer Space, you know, it knows exactly what it is. It doesn't really try too hard with the comedy. It just kind of lets the absurdity of the setting and the concept kind of run with it without really trying to push the jokes too hard. They just kind of let them happen. And it's another film with some truly great creature effects, this time used in a a much more funny way. I've heard a rumor that the creatures, the clown, alien, creature, monster things from this, that they were repurposed and used in Ernest Scared Stew but I've never seen if that's actually true but I could believe it if you repainted them they could be the creatures from Ernest Scared Stupid another one on the more comedy or at least the more humorous end of things is Return of the Living Dead which is my favorite 80s zombie flick it's one that has a very (laughs) strangely tragic ending or a very dark ending but running right through it it's got some of the more creative zombies ever put to film and I've just got something for movie punks I don't know if that makes sense but there's a very particular type of punk that only appears in film and it's very clearly the result of someone who never really encountered and doesn't really understand what punk is trying to make punk characters but you know they're great fun all the way through and in terms of films where you actually have like notable zombies then the tar man zombie is such a great little bit of person in a suit creature effects
1: this also coined brains this is the first movie where zombies yelled out brains and apparently craved brains very good horror comedy uh the stuff with the teenagers i like you say it's because they didn't know about punks but it's one of those things where i can't tell if it's intentional self-parody because the movie is generally very comedic i agree special effects are incredible for a while i thought it was tom savini but it's actually apparently not but like generally really incredible zombie effects perfect horror comedy i think so, my last pick for the 80s is the 1984 movie Trick or Treat. It comes from one
0: of my favorite little obscure horror spin off subgenres, and that's rock exploitation. Trick or Treat is a film that was made by the band Fastway. Fastway were a project created by Fast Eddie Clark from Motorhead and bassist Pete Way from UFO, hence Fastway. They made pretty good. 80s metal and hard rock. I'm quite a fan of Fastways material, but the two of them concocted the idea of a rock exploitation film with uh, an attenuating uh, soundtrack album called Trick or Treat. And the film that came out the other end is one of the most fun and best made examples of the rock exploitation genre. The crossover between rock, heavy metal, and uh, to an extent punk, with horror is something that you know was firmly cast in the 80s you have some great examples of soundtracks from the 1980s that had you know a, a great either studio made or contracted from a band tunes to them I think one of the most famous is from a movie that I was going to put on this list but I realized it was getting too long and that's Pet Cemetery, which obviously had a Ramones song as the theme tune as well as a few other examples The Trick or Treat the bad guy from Trick or Treat Sammy Kerr is so much fun endless fun you have a fairly sympathetic 80s teen lead and you also have a few guest appearances from one Ozzy Osbourne who I would have thought would have been extremely busy around the time this was made because it was when his solo career was kind of moving towards its peak as well as an out of makeup appearance from Gene Simmons both are quite welcome and both are quite funny the Gene Simmons one you could almost miss him if you didn't know it was him but as an example of that kind of crossover between heavy metal, hard rock, punk and horror easily one of my favourites, trick or treat probably one of the best made and just a really
1: fun film as well Not quite the same thing, but the Slumber Party Massacre sequel with the uh, electric guitar drill weapon is what I kept thinking of when you were talking about Roxploitation. But yeah, the Slumber Party Massacre series is generally pretty ridiculous, and when they got to his weapon being an electric guitar with a drill on the end, that was, I don't know, that sort of peak 80s horror silliness.
0: And to properly round it out, because I, I did miss one again, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, another more or less horror comedy. It's odd because, I mean, the, the poster promoting Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 has the cast posing as the breakfast club, so I thought it was a pretty clear that this was humorous and not a direct sequel. It is directed by Toe Pooper, which helps it a lot. It really helps to get the exact right amount of chaos in the film. And also an iconic performance from Bill Moseley as Chop Top, in another one of the classic texas chainsaw characters this one is just madness through and through it knows that it's not particularly serious it has a really great kind of final girl character in caroline williams and overall it's just a really fun film also a great a great and absolutely madhouse performance from dennis hopper as well there that's me in the 80s done my, my
1: big list is finished madhouse performances from dennis hopper are always good which jumps us ahead to one of my shout outs which is blue velvet and while none of the lynch films made my number one for any decade i do think he's contributed some of the best to horror and yeah blue velvet is definitely one of my 80s shout outs i've seen people dispute that it's horror but it seems very much horror to me my number one for the 80s is videodrome uh, although there is a lot of competition in this decade. So David Cronenberg made so many brilliant, utterly wild body horror movies over the 70s, 80s and 90s. i recently binged the first three, one of which is pretty much Species, like Species, which everyone talks about as being a repetition of Alien. It's a lot closer to... I think it's Shiver, the second one, which has, yeah, a woman essentially playing the same role as the and species. But through to the 90s, he was making great body horror films. But I think Videodrome is the peak for me of that whole cycle of films. So as it devolves into dream logic, Videodrome makes these fascinating links between scopophilia, sadomasochism, and a murky global conspiracy For people who don't know, it's a film where a man has a Betamax slot in his belly, and that's just a fairly typical effect for the film. So the sort of interacting transformation of flesh and technology reaches a kind of horrific singularity by the end it was kind of echoed later by Existens which sort of did a similar thing for for games and the internet in, in the late 90s in a somewhat more straightforward maybe isn't the word but a somewhat less traumatic way I think Existens is a little bit more fun whereas Videodrome really Goes pretty wild. And honestly, when I first watched it, it actually set off a manic episode, resulting in a messy fail of an honours essay. But now it's a regular rewatch, and knowing what's coming makes it less crazy making. It was very poorly received on release, but it's one of those films that's really been rehabilitated in a big way. Honourable mentions to The Thing and Society for their brilliant body horror practical effects society directed by brian yusner overall isn't nearly as good a movie as cronenberg's best work but in terms of practical effects the body horror genre never quite topped the climax of society like that sequence is kind of pretty much the peak of body horror just in terms of effects sequences and also it's class war horror so that's cool and for notable castration of the decade well Cannibal Holocaust which we had to mention for something so we'll mention it for that an explicit castration and documentary style I'm personally not attracted to watching that movie because of the unsimulated animal cruelty it's a bit of a hard boundary for me I'm against any kind of unsimulated non-consensual violence for the sake of a movie or just in general but simulated violence between consenting adults is all in good fun and i've heard cannibal holocaust has some interesting social commentary on their sort of colonial role in the in the region and the role of filmmaking in that but just don't want to watch it because of the the animal cruelty
0: you know what that's fair enough i think that brings us into the 1990s to be continued